Well, I'm going to have you stand up once again for the reading of God's Word. And if you would open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is our reading for this morning. Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, And on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Pray with me this morning. Father, we agree with David who wrote this psalm that you are our God, our King, and you are worthy of our blessing forever and ever. We confess gladly this morning, O God, that you are great and that you are highly to be praised. And that your greatness is unsearchable. There is no creature that knows the bounds of your greatness. It is upon your glorious splendor, upon your majesty, upon your wonderful works, O God, that we meditate. We we thank you and meditate upon your work of creation. We meditate upon your work of providence by which you govern all things. And we meditate upon your work of redemption. 
We thank you for the power of your awesome acts, especially the power that you exerted in saving sinners by the cross of Christ. We thank you that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you are slow to anger, that you are great in loving kindness, that your mercies are over all of your works, O God. And we thank you that you are the king of an everlasting kingdom, one that will endure throughout the rest of time and eternity. So, Father, we look to you. We confess that everything that we need comes from you. And we confess that our need this morning is for you to meet with us, for you to refresh our souls, for you to feed us your word, your truth, that you would revive us, that you would fill us with a longing for you, and that we would, as our brother Michael has already prayed, feast upon your word. We thank you for how you love us and how you draw near to us when we call upon you in truth. And so may you now be pleased to minister to the needs of all of the people who are here and even those who have not been able to come today. I entrust them all to you, to your care, to your blessing. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please take your Bibles with me and open to the book of Ephesians. And for the first time in our exposition of this magnificent book, we come to chapter 6. We are nearing the end of the book. I would say rapidly, but that's really not the term to use in our study. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. However, we're only going to be looking at part of verse 1. And the title of this message is God's Word to Children. God's word to children. So follow along as I read from the word of God. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Today is a very special day in the Armstrong household, and that is because 10 years ago today, our son Ian was born. It's hard to imagine that it's been an entire decade since he was born. He is our first child to break the double-digit barrier. And hands down, the day of his birth was simply one of the greatest days of my life. It was 10 years ago, but I can remember it so vividly as if it took place just yesterday. And for his first birthday, one of the things that I did was write him a letter, as I have written letters to my children, all of them. And I would like to share with you a small portion of what I wrote to him, again, on his first birthday. Ian, our greatest desire for you is that you come to know the Lord. There is nothing else nearly as important as that. Your mommy and I beg the Lord to save you. We beg him to give us wisdom to be godly, biblical, and God-centered parents. 
the world will attempt to tell you that so many other things are more important, like money, sports, etc. But always remember, what matters most is your relationship with Jesus Christ, and that you commit yourself to living a life that obeys and honors him. May this be your greatest passion in life, as it is your parents'. We pray these things for you because we love you so much. Till next year, Lord willing, I wish you a very happy first birthday. As parents, it is difficult to express in words just how much we love our children. And because we love them so much, we want many good things for them. We want good health for them. We want for them to learn and grow. We want for them to excel in all areas of life. But by far the most important thing that any Christian parent wants for his or her child is for them to come to know and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we diligently pray for the Lord to save our children, don't we? And our grandchildren. And we pray that God would not only save them, but that he would save them very early in their life and spare them a life of rebellion and misery. Personally, I want nothing more as a parent than for God to save all five of my children early in their lives when they are young. And with this in mind, let's now direct our attention to Ephesians chapter 6. And specifically, I want to draw your attention to the very first word in verse 1. Notice what it is. Children. Stop there. We're stopping there because we're not going any further than that in the text. I'm normally a very slow preacher, but we're going to go even slower this morning because there is a lot that is here for us to consider just by virtue of the fact that Paul uses this word children right here in the text. Now when Paul says children in Ephesians 6.1, he is using what is called the vocative case in Greek. That is a technical way of simply saying that this is the case of direct address. In other words, at this point in his letter, what Paul is doing is speaking directly to the children. He's not talking to the parents. He's talking to the children themselves. It is the case of direct address. And this is unusual because in the Bible, children are rarely addressed directly the way that Paul does so here in Ephesians. In fact, to my knowledge, this verse and the parallel passage in Colossians 3.20 are the only two times that I am aware of in which the writers of the Bible directly speak to children. And so this is unusual. This is rare in the literature of Holy Scripture. Children are often referred to in the Bible, their parents are referred to, and on and on it goes. But rarely do we find the writers of the Bible writing directly to them and then giving them specific instructions. Now up until chapter 5 and verse 22 of Ephesians, Paul has been addressing the entire Ephesian congregation. 
which means that everything up to this point has been applicable to the entire church body. But beginning in chapter 5 and verse 22, Paul begins to sort of deviate away from his normal pattern in this letter, and he begins to address certain groups of people within the church. He directly addresses the wives in chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. And then he begins to directly address the husbands in chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. And now he directly addresses the children in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. And by virtue of the fact that Paul directly addresses the children the way that he does, there are two very significant presuppositions that Paul makes about these children. And with the rest of our time this morning, we are going to consider these two significant presuppositions that are in the mind of Paul as he directly addresses these children of the Ephesian congregation. The first presupposition is Roman numeral one on your notes page in the bulletin. The first presupposition is this. These children are Christian children. Let that sink in for a moment. These children are Christian children. So what kind of children is Paul addressing in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3? He is not addressing all children... Not at all. He is very specifically addressing children who are Christians. And the fact that these children are Christian children is made plain to us in the book of Ephesians in three ways. And I want to take some time to develop this because this is not something that I had thought about until this week in preparation for this message. So first... The fact that these are Christian children is made plain to us by the broad context of the book. So we ask the question, to whom did Paul write the letter of Ephesians? According to the very first verse, Ephesians 1.1, he tells us Paul wrote this letter to the saints who are at Ephesus. So keep in mind that this letter is not written to the entire city of Ephesus, It's not written to all the citizens of Ephesus. It is written very specifically to the called-out body of Christ that existed in that city. And some of the saints in Ephesus, listen, were children. Were children. Well, secondly, the fact that these are Christian children is further made plain to us by the more immediate context of the book. And by more immediate context, I mean chapters 4 And five, and I want to take a little more time to develop this point. You will remember that in the first half of Ephesians, Paul is establishing for us what God has done in Christ for us. These are the redemptive indicatives of chapters one, two, and three. And then in the second half of the book, what Paul does is he establishes how we are to live in light of what God has done for us in Christ. These are the moral imperatives of chapters four, five, and six. So in view of the fact that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, Ephesians 4.1 says. And the idea in Ephesians 4.1 in terms of walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, as I've said before, is that of a scale. 
On the one side, we have our calling, all that God has done for us in Christ. And on the other side of the scale is how we are to live in light of that call, calling. Excuse me. And so our lifestyle is to match our position in Christ. There is to be an equal weight between the two realities. And part of what it means to walk worthy of our calling is to walk in wisdom, which Paul says in Ephesians 5.15. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And you may remember that we said some months ago when we were in that text that when Paul begins to talk about walking in wisdom, he begins it in chapter 5, verse 15, and he continues that whole discussion to chapter 6 and verse 9. It is a lengthy section in terms of what it means to walk in wisdom. And you will remember that walking in wisdom in the Bible is not something that's philosophical. We're not talking about that kind of wisdom in the Bible. Wisdom is always very practical. Wisdom in the Bible means to be skilled in the art of godly living. And that is, in fact, what Paul is talking about in this section of the book. And further... Part of what it means to walk in wisdom, part of what it means to be skilled in the art of godly living is to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, which means to live under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so if you're going to live a life that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called, it is imperative that you be filled with the Spirit because the Spirit is the one who empowers you to live the Christian life. One of the most frustrating things you can ever do is attempt to live the Christian life in the flesh. It is an impossibility. It cannot be done apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit is given to us in chapter 5, 19 through 21. And you will note that to be filled with the Spirit does not mean that you speak in tongues. Paul doesn't say that. Nor does he say that when you are filled with the Spirit, you will be slain in the Spirit, so-called, and fall out on the ground in some uncontrollable experience. Nor does Paul say that you will have any other kind of ecstatic experience when you are filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say anything remotely like that. Rather, what he says is in verse 19, when you are filled with the Spirit, the result will be a love for God-centered music. You will love music like we just sang, Behold Our God, because it is God-exalting, it is God-centered. That is what will bring joy to your soul. Also, when you are filled with the Spirit, the result will be a pattern of consistent thankfulness in verse 20. And then also, when you are filled with the Spirit, the result will be an attitude of willing submission to authority. That is in verse 21. And this submission to authority is ultimately directed to God as the highest authority and then submission to any other kind of authority that God has established in your life. And so follow this, after introducing the idea of submission in verse 21, Paul then gives three examples of relationships in the church that involve submission to authority. We have already looked at the first one, wives are to submit to their husbands, that's in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, Paul begins with the second example, children are to submit to their parents. And then the third example, slaves are to submit to their masters also in Ephesians 6. And so now listen very carefully. In all three of these examples of submission to authority, 
Paul is addressing very specifically Christian people. Christian people. He is not addressing all wives and husbands, but very specifically Christian wives and husbands. He is not addressing all children and parents, but Christian children and parents. He is not addressing all slaves and masters. He is addressing Christian slaves and masters. And not only is he addressing all three of these groups as Christians, he is describing in each case what it looks like for them to be filled with the Spirit. If you want to know what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit in your marriage, look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. This is the pattern of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit as a husband and as a wife. If you want to know what it looks like for children and parents to be filled with the Spirit, you look at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And if you want to know what it looks like for Christian slaves and masters to be filled with the Spirit, you look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And so from the broad context of the book, that is verse 1, Paul addresses the saints at Ephesus. And from the more immediate context, that is Ephesians 4 and 5, it is plain, at least in my mind, that Paul is addressing Christian children. Christian children. But thirdly, the fact that these are Christian children is also made plain to us by the very instructions that he gives to them in Ephesians 6.1. Please notice what Paul says. He instructs the children to obey their parents. But then notice what he says next. How are they to obey their parents? In the Lord. And what does that assume about these children? That they know the Lord. How can someone do something in the Lord if they're not in the Lord? So that assumes, it demands that the children that Paul is addressing do, in fact, know the Lord. How else are they going to obey in the Lord? That is assumed. So to me, that is compelling. It is clear that these children that Paul is addressing are, in fact, saved. They are Christian children. And so this is the first presupposition that Paul makes when he directly addresses the children of the Ephesian congregation. And listen, what a wonderful presupposition that is. Do you understand what this means? Here's what it means. And this blessed me as I thought about it this week. It is possible for children to be saved. Isn't that wonderful? I'm so thankful to God for that. It is possible for children, even young children, I believe, to be converted to Christ, to be born again, to truly know the Lord, love the Lord, obey the Lord, follow the Lord, to be in the Lord. This is a huge truth to understand. And as we reflect on this truth, I want us to consider for a few moments the idea of childhood evangelism. Because this verse assumes that that is what took place. Now, as we think about childhood evangelism, this is something that requires very careful thinking because we live in a day in which confusion about this subject abounds. Confusion in this area is the norm. It is not the exception, unfortunately. And the confusion regarding childhood evangelism falls under two broad categories. 
with one being much more prevalent than the other. The most common confusion or misunderstanding about childhood evangelism is found in the modern, popular, decisionistic methods of evangelism, which are used, by the way, not only with children, but for adults. This is huge in our day. This is widespread. This is considered to be normal. This is considered in many circles to be the only way of doing evangelism. And the way this methodology is utilized with children, it often goes something like this. There is an adult, maybe a parent, maybe a Sunday school teacher, but an adult of some kind who asks the child or the children if they want to go to heaven one day when they die rather than hell. The child is then told that he or she needs to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. The child or the children are then asked to raise a hand, sign a card, or walk an aisle to demonstrate their faith, and then they are asked to repeat a prescribed prayer, which, by the way, is never found in the Bible. And then after that, that child is given the immediate assurance of salvation and is shortly thereafter baptized. And that is so normal today that if you question that, you might consider to be the heretic, the troublemaker. But, beloved, I say this with all the kindness and tenderness in my heart, that method, that approach to evangelism, it is unbiblical. You do not find it in the Bible. You will not find an example of that in the book of Acts. It is wrong and it is dangerous. And I cannot stress dangerous enough with about ten exclamation marks following that word. But again, by far, this is the most popular method of evangelism used today, and it has been for the better part of 200 years since it was invented by Charles Finney. Now, let me be quick to add that many who use this method of evangelism, I believe, have a genuine zeal for the salvation of souls. I'm not doubting their motives, many of them. Many of them are very well-intentioned. They want nothing but the best for children. They want to see them saved, and we applaud that. But nonetheless, this is not a biblical method of evangelism. As I mentioned, it is further wrong and it is dangerous, especially when utilized for children because children are more prone than adults to being deceived, aren't they? They are very prone to being deceived, which makes this method all the more dangerous. Let me illustrate. I could very easily gather all of the children of this church into a room Or I could do it in another church. It doesn't really matter. And I could sit them down, and I could talk to them in such a way, it wouldn't be difficult, but I could get them all to raise a hand, sign a card, walk an aisle, say they want to go to heaven when they die, say that they believe in Jesus, and all of them would supposedly become Christians. I could manufacture decisions that wouldn't be very difficult for me. I have the power to do that. But that is not how the Bible presents salvation. What I do not have the power to do is to produce regeneration. No human has the power to produce regeneration. No evangelist has the power to regenerate anyone. And that is because the work of regeneration is the work of God alone. 
It is something that only God can affect in the life of a child or anyone else for that matter. Only God can produce repentance in the heart of a child. It is a gift from heaven, the Bible says. Only God can produce saving faith in the heart of a child. That too is a gift from God. These are things that only God can do. No human, no parent, no evangelist, no matter how skilled they are, no matter how gifted they are, no matter how persuasive they are, can produce that in the life of a child. Listen, if there was anything that I could possibly do to make my children Christians, I would do it. I would make tremendous sacrifices. I would do absolutely anything if I could save my children and make them Christians. I want nothing more than for my children to be with me in heaven. I would sacrifice my own life for that. And you understand that as a parent because you love your children, you love their souls. But we can do no more, we can no more make our children Christians than we can make the universe. This is something that only God can do. To put it simply, only God can make someone a Christian. Do you understand that? Only God can make someone a Christian. Apart from God, it is an utter impossibility for someone to become a Christian. This is exclusively the work of God alone. And so we ask, how did these children that Paul addresses in Ephesians 6.1, how did they become Christians? Was it because their parents were Christians? Was it something that they inherited from their Christian parents? No. Here's how they became Christians. God convicted them of their sin. And then he effectually drew them to Christ, and then he granted to them regeneration. He made them alive in Christ. In other words, they became Christians the same way that adults become Christians. There's not two kinds of salvation, one for children and one for adults. It's the same. Conviction of sin. The effectual call of God upon the sinner to come to faith in Christ God must grant repentance and faith. God must regenerate, give life to the spiritually dead person. And so these children, beloved, they became Christians by the grace of God as they believed in the gospel of Christ. Well, there is a second broad category of confusion about childhood evangelism, one that is much less common than the first, And it is the view that children can't be converted. Some people have that view, that children cannot be converted. Now, some hold to this view as an overreaction to the popular modern methods of evangelism used today. And they would say that in order for a person to really become a Christian, to truly be converted to Christ, they must become an adult because that's an impossibility in childhood. Well, this view isn't correct, because the children that Paul is writing to, again, I believe, are, in fact, Christians, as as we have labored to demonstrate for you. Now, I want to recommend a book for you. Dennis Gunderson has written a little book on childhood conversion called Your Child's Profession of Faith. Dave P. was leading a Bible study on base. They're currently going through that book, so some of you men already are familiar with that. But that is a tremendous book. It's very short, very easy to read. You could read it in one sitting. Again, Your Child's Profession of Faith. And the preface is written by Jim Eliff. 
And he begins by asking a question that is really important to ask. And that question is this, can children be converted at a young age? He says, yes. Can we know with certainty that they are converted at a young age? That's a different question. His answer, often not. Often not. Not always, but often not. So Jim Eliff makes a very important distinction here. Yes, it is possible for children to be converted even at a young age. But number two, as parents, we can't often know with certainty if they have genuinely been converted. We can't often know, not always, but often. The genuineness of a child's profession of faith will, listen carefully, will oftentimes not become proven until a crisis moment occurs. For example, when that child becomes a teenager and maybe he begins to be or she begins to be influenced by non-Christian teenagers, there is a decision to make here. Am I going to follow my ungodly peers or am I going to follow Christ? That is a crisis moment. And you know what that moment will do? It will bring to the surface the genuineness of that child's profession of faith or lack thereof. Another example might be when your child leaves the home, goes to college. Let's say the child goes to a secular university and is exposed to unbiblical, anti-Christian worldviews from the professors. This happens even in supposedly Christian universities, unfortunately. And what's going to happen with that child in that environment? The profession of faith is going to be shown for what it is. Is it real or is it false? Will the child who is now in college buy into that system, that anti-Bible system, or will he or she follow Christ? And so it may be in a moment like that that the genuineness of the profession of faith that that child made early in life is proven to be true or to be false, and that is a very important thing to consider. If they are truly converted, listen, they will follow Christ. Period. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. John 10. And so as parents, there is a fine line that we are to walk in evangelizing our children. On the one hand, we want to be careful not to give our children a false assurance of salvation, which happens so often today ad infinitum. Dennis Gunderson, the author of the book I just suggested, says, Once a false confidence takes root in a soul, how easily it remains until old age. I can count probably on one hand how many times I've met people in this city who have said that they were not Christians. And I used to work with a lot of people like that in a secular environment, but I can't tell you how ungodly those people are. But when they were children, somebody used this kind of method of evangelism with them, and at that point, they were deceived about their relationship with God. And that took such a deep root that it has carried on into their life, even unto in old age. They might say something like this, oh, I took care of that a long time ago, right after they got, ta- got done talking about some sinful thing that they're doing in their life. And so on the one hand, we want to be careful not to give our children a false assurance of salvation. That is a dangerous thing to do. But on the other hand, we want to be careful not to get in the way 
We don't want to get in the way and hinder our children from coming to Christ. So it's like a fine line. There's a real tightrope that we're walking here. As parents, our greatest responsibility, and I don't say this lightly, but it is our greatest responsibility to evangelize our children. And as evangelists, we must teach them the word of God. We must expose them like here to the word of God especially the gospel, we must demonstrate for them a godly example in our home. We must show them what it looks like to love Christ, to know Christ, to follow Christ. We must pray for their salvation as a way of life. We must explain the gospel clearly to them. We must urge them to repent. We must urge them to believe. We must urge them to come to Christ. We plead with them to trust in Christ alone for salvation. We make that explicitly clear. And we should encourage, listen, every positive response they make to the gospel. When your child says something good and affirming about Christ and God and the Bible and the gospel, don't shoot it down and say that's a false profession of faith. You encourage them, praise them, and say, oh, I love to hear you speak that way of God. I love to hear you affirm Christ. I love to hear you say that about the Bible. So you encourage every positive movement they make in the direction of Christ and his gospel. But... When and if they make a profession of faith in Christ, the wise parent will be patient. The wise parent will be cautious and affirming, but also patient. A wise parent will not immediately tell that child, you are in fact a Christian. A wise parent will not immediately give to that child Assurance of salvation because, listen, the parent doesn't, in fact, know what is happening in the heart of the child. We just don't know. And again, if their profession of faith in Christ is genuine, this will become evident over time. Now, a couple of mine have, have, have expressed strongly to me that they want to become Christians. I affirm that. I praise that. We go through the gospel again, and they have asked me, well, Daddy, am I now a Christian? Well, I didn't say yes right away because I, I'll say, I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know what's going on inside of you. But if you have truly repented of sin, if you have truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then, yes, you are a Christian. But I don't know if that's happened. And I won't know until time goes on because that's how it is in this kind of situation. Well, there is a second presupposition that Paul makes in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. And we're not going to spend near the time on this one. And it is Roman numeral 2 on your handout. These children are participants in corporate worship. Paul assumes that when the church gathered together for corporate worship, children were present. These children were present. How do we know that? Well, when this letter was read to the church, children were there. They're present. 
that has to be the case because he's not talking to children who don't exist or who aren't there. They are there. That's why he is directly addressing them because they are a part of the gathered people of God, the congregation that existed in the city of Ephesus. And why were they there? Because they, like adults, need to be under the ministry of the word of God. They need to be under the reading of the word of God. They need to be under the exposition of the word of God. And so they're there. Now, in light of this, I want to say a few things. And again, I hate the fact that I don't have much time, but I do want to address something about the Family Integrated Church Movement. It's known as FIC, Family Integrated Church Movement. This is a small but growing movement in America that has grown out of another movement, the homeschool movement. Some of the most significant leaders of this movement are people that I greatly respect, like Vody Bauckham, Paul Washer, Doug Phillips of Vision Forum Ministries in San Antonio. And those who are part of this movement are very conservative, and I thank God for that. And oftentimes they are reformed in their theology, and I further thank God for that. But at the core of their view of the church is that families should always be together and never segregated by age. Never segregated by age. In fact, they would go so far as to say that age segregated ministries like Sunday school classes or youth ministries or even having a nursery is unbiblical. I've even heard someone say the nursery is of the devil. That's a very strong kind of approach about the nursery. Not all would advocate that strong of a view. But the idea is that all of the children are to be integrated into all of the meetings of the church. There's not to be any kind of separation by age with the parents and their children. And they would further strongly emphasize the role of the father as the spiritual leader of the home. Again, something that I greatly value and appreciate. Personally, I have benefited from these movements. I have heard these men preach many, many times, sometimes in person. But frankly, I do believe that they go too far. I do believe they go too far because there are definite times in which it is good to have classes that are for children and there are definite times in which it is good to have classes just for adults. You can't always have them together in my opinion. And it is good to have a nursery for those little ones who are so wiggly that they cannot sit still. I mean, it's just a fact of life that at a certain age, kids are so wiggly, right? They're wiggly. They need somewhere to go. And the nursery is a good place, a good opportunity for that period of time. I view the nursery in part as a ministry to the moms who are are so wonderful in taking care of their families and their children, and they need a little help from time to time so that they're not always distracted. Give them a time to be able to think more carefully on the preaching of the Word of God and the worship service. And so there is a place for children's classes. There is a place for adult-only classes. There is a place for the nursery. I don't believe these things are unbiblical. I don't believe they undermine the family and the church. I think they are right and good, and they have a place. But at the same time, there is a biblical pattern for our children to be with us during the corporate worship. And I want to begin showing you a few verses with the remaining time we have, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 31. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 31. 
and this is nearing the end of Moses' life, and we find a very interesting situation here. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 10, Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, Verse 11, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. So every seven years, the law of God in its entirety was to be read before all of Israel. What an amazing scene that would be. Verse 12, assemble the people, the men and the women and children. So it's not only the adults, but there are children there and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Verse 13, their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So very clearly, this massive time in Israel's life when the law of God is read in its entirety every seven years, they're all gathered together, including the children, so that they can be under the ministry of the word of God. That is so vital. As we go to Joshua chapter 8, another example of this, we find the children present with their adults as they're hearing the word of God. Joshua 8 and verse 32, he wrote... There on the stones, a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of all the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as the native, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given commandment at first to bless the people of Israel. Now notice verse 34. Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read. Before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So again, we find the same precedent. The children were with their parents when the word of God is being read to them. In Ezra chapter 10, as you go a little further in your Bible, to the right. Ezra chapter 10. As you go past Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you'll come to Ezra. And here we have another tremendous time in Israel's history, Ezra 10.1. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And so again, the children are there. As you go to the next book to the right, Nehemiah chapter 8, and we find a tremendous scene. Ezra is reading the law, a very familiar passage. Ezra 8, 1 through 3, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding 
on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate and from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Well, that is not a seeker-sensitive service at all. Really long. Reading the law of God in its entirety over a period of hours. And you have everyone who can understand, everyone who can hear and understand, children of an understanding age would have been present. And then in the New Testament, you have our passage, Ephesians 6.1. Children, Paul is addressing, who are a part of the congregation, who are a part of the corporate worship of the church. The parallel passage, Colossians 3.20, saying the same thing, affirming the same thing. But now let me give a word of caution. Because if parents want to bring their children into the worship service, that is a wonderful thing to do. It is a biblical thing to do. There is a biblical precedent for that, as we have just seen. But if they're going to do this, the word of caution would be this, and I say this with with a lot of grace, that parents must train their children for this. They must train them to learn to sit still, to be quiet, to listen, and as they grow older, even to take notes. And a good practice would be at lunch following the Lord's Day worship, sit at the table and talk about the sermon. What what did we hear? What did we learn about? Foster that sort of attentiveness to the Word of God. And further, I would say this sort of as a very gracious caution. If a child becomes noisy, all children are noisy to some degree, but if they become noisy to the extent of becoming a distraction in the worship services, the parents should graciously, very considerately take them out, right? Take them out until they can calm down and quiet down. That's just being considerate of others. I have a a pastor friend of mine who told me about a time when he was preaching. This is a pastor who was preaching in another state, not Louisiana. And during the sermon, there was a child in this family that began to be really loud, And it got louder and louder. (laughs) And the child wouldn't become quiet. And what began to happen is that no one was listening to the pastor preach anymore because they were all listening to this child. And as it became apparent that the parents were not going to handle the situation by taking the child out, that another one of the elders got up from his seat and approached the pew where the family was sitting. And the wife was sitting at the very end of the pew, so that was the one that he naturally spoke with. And he very kindly said, could you please take your child out of the service? You know, until they calm down, then bring them back. Well, the mother got so angry that she stood up, and the whole family followed her out of the worship service, and they never came back. And that's unfortunate. Because what they were doing in that moment was distracting everyone else from being able to hear the word of God. And so the children are more than welcome there, but again, it's a consideration on the part of the parent when the child becomes disruptive to take care of that in such a way that it doesn't distract everyone else from hearing the word of God. Now, as we conclude, let me again say that as parents, we are responsible to evangelize our children As a Christian parent, your number one focus is to be an evangelist in the home. 
There is a, a, a mission field overseas. There is a mission field in our community. But the greatest mission field of which you are a part is the one that exists in your house, in your own home. And as Christian parents, listen carefully, you are the most important preachers your children ever have. Not Spurgeon, not Piper, not Paul Washer, you You are the best and most important preachers your children have. So again, you are responsible to evangelize your children, but please remember this, that you are not responsible for their salvation. You are not. That is the work of God. And so what we do, we pray. We pray for God to save our children. We pray that he will save them when they are young, But if they don't become Christians when they are young, we must continue to pray for them until either they come to faith in Christ or until we take our final breath. If my children, any of them, are not saved, I want to die praying for them. That's how I want to leave this world. And that is the mark of a Christian parent. So may the Lord help us to do this. Well, there's much more in Ephesians 6. Lord willing, we'll look at that next time. And as we conclude our time together this morning, we conclude in a wonderful way with the Lord's Supper. And this table is a holy, sacred reminder that God has provided a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he and he alone is sufficient to save us, to wash us, to give us righteousness. And this table is open to anyone who is a true Christian. It is available to anyone who is a true Christian. But if you are not a Christian here this morning, we, we thank God that you're here. We love you. But if you are not a Christian, this table is not for you. And so when the plate comes to you, just pass it on to the next person. And now as we come to the table, let's spend a few moments preparing ourselves to participate in this in a holy way. So let's pray together.